0: Verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Okay, let's face it. That's a strange statement. We can't blame the disciples for not understanding what Jesus was saying to them. We have all the details of the rest of their lives before us, or at least the ones that mattered enough to make it into the Bible. And we still have a hard time figuring out what Jesus meant here. To understand what Jesus was telling them and the importance of why he was telling them this now, we have to go back a few chapters to another time that he told them a little while and you will not see me. We have to jump back to chapter 14. And that chapter starts with Jesus telling them not to let their hearts be troubled, even though he was going away. And the reason that this was so was that they believed in God. And they should believe in him as well. They didn't get it either then. And that's why Thomas asked him, where are you going? Followed up by Philip asking him, show us the Father. It was then that Jesus used the divine name of God as his own. Once again, by telling them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he followed that up by telling them, That he would ask the father and they would send, they would send another paraclete to them. And it's just as that title was foreign to some of us until recently, it was just as foreign to them. You're going to send a what? What do you mean he's been with us, but he's going to live in us? What does that mean? And then beginning in verse 18, he told them, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then he went on to tell them what the ministry of this other paraclete was, and why it was to their benefit. Then he went, and the other paraclete came and they didn't get it. So much so that this second time that he tells them in a little while, they really react. They didn't understand the first time, and now they really don't understand. Have you ever felt this way with the Lord? Have you ever had him doing things in your life, around your life, that is completely contrary to what you want to have happen? and none of it seems to be making any sense? If you haven't, you will. And when it happens, there's a supreme possibility that you will be no less confused than these men were. But there is something that you can do to stop this confusion, to figure out this enigma that is a riddle inside of a puzzle that seems to be wrapped in a mystery. You have to ask yourself, is Jesus being cruel with these men? Is he holding back information for them, keeping just enough information from them so that they think that they understand, and then they realize that they have no clue what he's talking about? Is this what he's doing? Is God a puppet master, pulling strings for his enjoyment, Is he that feisty 10-year-old boy who likes using a magnifying glass to to burn bugs and wreak havoc? You guys know what I'm talking about. Not a chance. It's my hope that by the time that we end this hour, that you will see why the disciples were confused and why we are so often in a fog concerning God and the direction that he's taking our lives. And most importantly, how we can get a clear understanding of what it is that he's doing in our lives. This is my goal, and this is his desire for us. So was Jesus being cruel or withholding information for the disciples? No. He told the disciples long before this that his ministry was one of reconciliation, that he came to die, The disciples were introduced to Jesus, at least some of them, by John the Baptist, who introduced him him to them with these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John 1.29. This statement, left on its own, though, may not have been much help in telling these men what the mission and purpose of Jesus was. Him being the Lamb of God can mean a lot of different things. And him taking away the sins of the world? Well, The human mind can come up with a a lot of ways that can happen. But Jesus was never ambiguous concerning what being the Lamb of God meant or how he would take away the sins of those that are called the world. Such as he told us in John 3.14 when he was talking to Nicodemus, and he told him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he even gave the why of him being lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then the events, from the rest of chapter 3, all the way to the end of chapter 6, chronicle the miracles of Jesus as he proves that he is God incarnate. Him giving these men and all men proof, physical proof that God was walking among them, teaching them, healing them telling them that they must believe in and on him in order to be saved. Such as in John 5, 25 and 26, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That explains the takes away the sins of, of the world part of John, John, John 1.29. But it doesn't tell them anything about the first part of that title, the title given him by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God part. But Jesus was never slow in reminding the disciples and all men what that meant, such as in John 6.51-58 when he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, we hear this question, and we understand what Jesus meant by them eating of the bread of life. We're not thrown off by it. But Jesus wasn't done telling them what being the Lamb of God really meant. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I have to stop here. I have to point out one reason why so many within the evangelical world are so confused about Jesus. I have to draw your attention once again to the fact that most, that, well, that most people within evangelicalism don't grasp Jesus was speaking to real flesh and blood humans at that moment. He wasn't offering life to rocks or trees. He was revealing life to corpses, living, breathing, dead people. People who thought that they had life, people who thought that they were living life all the while they were dead. We have to keep that in mind when we are understanding what our life with Christ is like and really is. Because we Christians often live looking at the ground instead of looking up. We think too small, even though we've been given the mind of Christ, as told to us in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We think here in this realm... We either have forgotten or don't know the admonishment of Paul, the one that he told the saints at the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We allow the things of this world to draw our attention and keep our attention. And for this reason, we are complacent concerning true life and those that are really dead. But Jesus was never this short-sighted. He explained what this life is that those that eat of his body and drink of his blood obtain. He said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The last word in that verse I just read sums up the problem within the disciples. The problem that was plaguing the people that Jesus had been talking with. And even the problem within many of our lives here as well. And that word is forever. We don't live for or in the forever. We live in and think in the now. We have our minds set on the world instead of the kingdom. But once again, Jesus corrected the thinking of the people. And the disciples, when he said in John 7, 33 and 34, I will be with you a little longer and then i'm going to him who sent me you will seek me and you will not find me where i am you cannot come and again john 12:32 he once again reminded the disciples that he was the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world he said and i when i am lifted up from earth will draw all people to myself no He had been playing with them concerning the rescue mission that he had been sent on. The issue was not with Jesus. It was with these men. The issue was that they had fallen in love with their version of the Lamb of God. They had fallen in love with the in this realm Lamb of God. And they were looking to reveling in the relationship that they had with him at that moment instead of living in and for the eternal. Remember, this is what Jesus had just said to his disciples when he told them, I didn't say these things to you from from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you are asking me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Those are verses 4 through 6 of this chapter. And because they're living in the now, instead of the eternal, they were confused. And And just to throw more confusion into the mix, though, The first time that Jesus said in a little while, back in chapter 14, is not referring to the same thing he did here. In the chapter 14 verses, he is speaking about the continued relationship between himself and the disciples. He was talking about the forever part of their being in the family of God, of their being a son of God. Here are those verses from chapter 14 again. I won't leave you as an orphan. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you in me. And I in you. I'm going to ask you guys. Contemplate those verses this week. Ruminate on them. Because in them, you will find the reality of your life in Christ. But these verses are about the eternal, forever reality of our life in Christ. But the verses from today, even though they begin with that same in a little while, they're referring and they mean a different time. They mean a different thing. And this was all too much for the disciples, which brings us to verses 17 and 18. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will, you will not see me? And again, in a little, a little while and you will see me And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. What he was talking about specifically talking about in verse 16, concerning this little while, was directly related to the giving of the Spirit. Meaning that once Jesus had gone and sent the other paraclete, the Spirit of truth, who would guide them into all truth, they would finally see. And the thing that they would finally see would be Jesus. The real Jesus. Not the flesh and bone Jesus that they had lived with for the last three years, but the Jesus that had existed for all eternity and will exist for all eternity. And this is where our modern evangelical interpretations go off the rails. Take a side road and get distracted. Why so often the explanation given to us that are by, uh, by those that are supposed to be our guides are meaningless? Why they have no impact. Why our life with Jesus seems to be so pointless, so random. And why so many then ditch the real true faith and go seeking God in emotions and experiences in what is called full gospel churches. Because we have been told that in both instances where Jesus says in a little while, he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. And in both instances, he is talking about part of those things, the death part. That is what he means in both instances. And he means for all that hear those words in a little while, you will see me no longer. But not completely for the reason that we think. Because we focus in on in that sentence on the see part as we should since this is the meaning of these sentences. But the problem that we run into is that we really don't see that we don't see. In the chapter 14 instance, when he's talking to the religious leaders, he's talking about eternal life with him. The one that those that could see him as he stood there at that moment, who thought that they were alive at that time, but who were actually dead and would remain dead because they were not of the Lamb of God, who would not take away their sins because they were not of the world. They could see him now, but they would not see him later. But for those that were of the Lamb of God, the ones that he did take their sins away because they are part of the real world, they would see him. But it's in the seeing that we get all messed up. You guys are, are you're thinking in your minds right now, I can't wait to see Jesus. To the day when we get to heaven and I get to physically see him, that is when my joy will be complete. But listen to those verses from chapter 14 one more time. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see you see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. The key to understanding what Jesus means here is found in Jesus not leaving them as orphans, that he will come to them. It's because Jesus will come to these men, that they are of him. They will see him. But how does that happen? When does that happen? In these verses, we can know that he's talking about the rest of our life with him. And we can know this is what he means because he says, because I live, you will also live. Live. Was he living when he said that? He wasn't talking about the life that these men had at that moment. He wasn't talking about these dead men walking that life. Because if that was the life that he was promising, that wasn't much of a life that he was at all, because Jesus is going to die in a few hours from now. And these men were all going to die in a few years. But the life that he's speaking about is predicated on him going, on him dying. Because without him going, we will never be given the eyes that can see. The eyes of faith that are given us by and through the spirit of truth. And all this confusion that we suffer with is really a byproduct of the bad theology that we have been spoon-fed for most of our lives. The theology that has propagated songs like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see his face. When I get to heaven, I'm going to talk with Jesus, saved by his wonderful grace. Are those words in that song true? Yeah, but they're not the whole truth. They're a partial truth that diminishes the whole truth. And they comfort us only because we do not live in the real truth. How is this so? I mean, I love that song, David. What's wrong with that song? Why are you being such a hater? The question I have to ask you is, Are we lacking now in Christ? Because that's not what Peter said. 2 Peter 1.3 said, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And here Paul concerning this issue and the issue of poor teaching and poor studying in 1 Corinthians 2. 6 through 16 He says yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of the age of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory but as it is written no eye has seen No ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. These things God has revealed, revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the person, the spirit of that person, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are in folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And this is how Paul finishes this whole thought. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. Did did you get that? Did you hear that? We have the mind of Christ. This is not a maybe. And this is not a someday you will. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. And because we have the spirit of Christ, because we have the mind of Christ, we should not be lacking And we must no longer allow ourselves to be immature in our relationship with Jesus. We have been sold a bill of goods concerning our life in Christ. Our life with Christ by men who cannot possess Christ. Shocking? Let me say that one more time. We have been sold a bill of goods concerning our life in Christ our life with Christ, by men who cannot possess Christ, who can't be of Christ. This has to be their reality. And the reason for this is simple, shockingly simple. Because if you are of Christ, then you do have the mind of Christ. The Spirit of Christ has regenerated your heart and given you the mind of Christ. And you cannot cannot spend time in his word, studying his word, preparing to feed his sheep, his word, and not be taught by his spirit. And if you have been taught by his spirit, convicted by his spirit, had his word illuminated by his spirit, you are not going to continue propagating a weak, powerless, girly Jesus a different Jesus than the one that the Bible teaches us of. one The one that does not demand, does not command, and does not expect from those that he came and died for. Him, for those that he purchased with his blood. If the Spirit has given you the mind of Christ, you will no longer care if the world tells you that you have to keep your sermons short. Because people don't have the ability to pay attention. You will no longer care if the world tells you that you have to be soft on sin and long on grace to attract people. That you have to pander to their worldliness in games, prizes, entertainment. You will no longer turn the worship of God, the God that is holy, 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 into an event, into a time of of fun, of worldliness instead of a time of gravity, of weightiness, of godliness. And saints, because this has been our reality for so long, we are those that the writer of Hebrews spoke about in chapter 5. When he said, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food, that's for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That was our past. That's where we came from. But there is something that we can do about this. Something we must do about this. There are practical steps that we each can take towards spiritual maturity. There's two of them. Number one, open the word of God. This shouldn't even be hard or even something that needs to be said. When you are in love, you hang out with the person that you love. Well, how do you hang out with God? Through prayer and in his word. This is the milk part of the Hebrew verses. If you can't get past the basic things of God, such as, do I really have to obey And you really are living on milk. Second thing you can do. Open the word of God and shun evil. Do you realize that if we were teleported back in a time into just 200 years ago, say the 1800s, the time of Edwards and Whitfield, that most of us would be burned at the stake for being a heretic? Because there's so much evil in our lives. Shocking? What is shocking are the things that we watch. The things that we listen to. And then we wonder why our relationship with the Lord is so weak. We wonder why. Oh, am I even saved, Lord? I can't even tell. You wonder why? You wonder why your sin nature has such control over you? That's the shocking thing. But this is what we've been taught. This is what we've been shown. The pursuit of holiness in our lives is no longer taught. Biblical fidelity is no longer demonstrated to us. And for this reason, you get to decide, no matter what the word of God says, whether or not you're going to to be that dog that's going to return to its own vomit. And you wonder why you're a babe in Christ. And you haven't moved towards spiritual maturity. Think on this. Because the disciples, men who lived with Jesus every day of their lives. Who didn't allow cultural Christianity to invade them. Who didn't watch sex-filled, vulgar-laden shows. Who didn't listen to music that celebrated the things that God hates. They had still made... A golden calf out of Jesus how much more have we done the same thing and we wonder why we're confused but verse 19 Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you're asking yourselves What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and uh, again a little while and you will see me? Saints, what I have said is truth concerning our our lack of biblical fidelity. We need to understand that Jesus is used to dealing with hard-hearted, muddle-headed people. We are all saints entombed, in bodies of sin. We are all this way. All his saints have always been this way. No one has ever truly gotten it. We are all the same. The only difference is that we stay babes in Christ. Instead of moving on into being mature in him. Simply because we have not had our powers of discernment trained. By constant practice in distinguishing good from evil. So listen to your your Savior as he teaches our brothers, men who are just like us. Beginning in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He begins this teaching session with those very familiar words, truly, truly, which signifies that what he's about to say is not a maybe, not a might, But it will, this will happen. And the thing that he says will happen is is that their worst fears are about to come to pass. You will weep and you will grieve. And the thing that is causing you to weep is causing the world to rejoice. The thing that he's talking about is his soon capture, torture, and crucifixion. And the world would rejoice over it. Because death is the ultimate victory for sin in this realm. And with the plan of God, the hour of Christ came to pass when the hour of the world was allowed to run its course, bringing the hour of pain and sorrow into the lives of these men. The enemy seemingly wins as Jesus dies. Spoiler alert. Jesus actually died. He he was dead, dead. Not just mostly dead. And for this reason, the disciples mourned and grieved. And Christ promised this to them. But he also promised them that their sorrow would be turned to joy. That joy for them will happen when they hear that he has risen from the grave. Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. They would have joy at the resurrection of Jesus. But I want you to imagine this. Can you imagine the sheer terror, the supreme fear in the hearts of Satan and his minions when their ultimate weapon against the children of God is defeated? It never happened before. Can you, af- can you fathom the utter dismay that they felt when death, the penalty for sin, that it had consumed Christ, when that was consumed in him? They're not God. So they couldn't understand that the death of the Son of God was nothing in comparison to the utter terror and horror of the wrath of his Father that was being poured out on him. As he stood In your place on that day of judgment. And paid in full the price of our sins. They could not have known that their evil scheme was the glorious plan of redemption of God. That what they meant for evil, God meant for good. That Jesus would kill death. That death could not hold him. That because he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because he took those sins away. He could and did kill death. On that day, death died. And Jesus then y- uses an illustration to explain what it, was, what it was that he was telling them, beginning in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Understatement. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. This analogy that Jesus just gave about the baby, this is important. Of first importance, we need to understand what it was that was being born. So what was being born? For these men, the the pangs of birth they would soon experience were a byproduct of the pain that Christ would endure. But what was it that they were about to birth? What was it that Jesus would bring into reality that wasn't there before? Well, there's a few clues as to what that thing is. First is that Jesus will see them again, and because of this, no one would be able to steal their joy. Well, has Jesus ever promised joy to them before? Yes, he has. Back in chapter 15, after telling them that he was divine and they were the branches, and because he is divine and they are the branches, They will believe in him, they will obey him and share in his ministry of reconciliation and their joy would be full. And it was there that he told them for the first time that anything that they asked the father in his name, the father would give them. And again, asking in his name is not a magic incantation, it's not abracadabra. Asking in his name is synonymous with asking in his nature. To ask in his name means that we must know his nature. And we've been given two promises concerning asking in his name. The first is that when we ask, that it will be given us. And the second is because we have asked in his name, and we have asked, and it has been given to us, our joy will be full. So joy was the first thing that these men were promised because of the birth pangs that they were even now beginning to experience. But when were, when were these men full of joy, though? This is tied into what is being birth. They were full of joy upon hearing the news that Jesus was alive. When they saw him once again as he promised them, that's when they were full of joy. But is that it? Or were there other things, other times, perhaps things that were of the vine, that brought them joy because they were the branches that did the same works of Christ and even greater works. Perhaps these works participating in the ministry of reconciliation brought them joy. Huh. Acts 15 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, dis, uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. What was it that brought these brothers great joy? The thing that caused these men's great joy was the conversion of the Gentiles. Their joy was found in the participation of the ministry of reconciliation. And What did the ministry of reconciliation do? A clue is given us. Just in case you missed the part about who sent them, listen to verse 4 of Acts 15. And to who they were sent. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. And the apostles and the elders and declared all that God had done with them. Well, who's primary in that verse? The apostles or the elders? Neither. It's the church. The local church body that they were sent to. And they were sent by another local church body. Now we know what it was that made these apostles' joy complete. What Jesus was talking about that which he promised to these men the thing that brought them true joy but what was it that was being birthed what did the death burial and resurrection of jesus accomplish jesus accomplish what was it was it your best life now was the thing that was about to be birthed your salvation so that you can live as a free agent to decide what you're going to do and how much of the Bible you're going to decide you're going to obey? Did Jesus die for you and pay the ultimate price for your sins by taking the wrath of his Father, just so that you could go on indulging in your sinful worldly passions and lifestyle? What was it that was being birthed? What was born on the day that Jesus died? The church. Not just you. And not just me. And not these men. The church. Jesus died for the church. Ephesians 5.25. This is the full meaning of the world. Of John 3.16. This is what we're told about in John 1.29. This is the full meaning of the sheep mentioned in John 10.11-16. This is the reality of Romans 5.8 that Christ died for sinners. The church is full of sinners, redeemed sinners, sheep who have been called out of the world and called into his wonderful light. This is what is birthed on that day. And this was what was causing the birth pains for these men. And this is what still causes birth pains for all that are called by his name. Because the birth of the church happened on a single day. And at the same time, it's still an ongoing, continuing process. As new churches are born, first in the minds and hearts and souls of men and women within a church, who then begin to pray about, labor in, and work towards birthing a new church. This church was birthed in this manner. The saints at Meridian labored in love, much love over this church, through much prayer, through much laboring over teaching your pastor and his wife, through discipling us, and then through sending us, and even now they continue to labor through the support they send, through their mentoring of us, through their continued prayer. And this is why the Reformers rightly stated that people do not birth churches. Churches birth churches. This is the first aspect of understanding that Jesus was alluding to as being born. The second aspect is told to us in verses 23 through 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you: whatever you ask of my name, and or ask of the Father my name, we will, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What is being promised here, this reality, is nothing less. I'm going to stop here. You guys want to pay attention now because I'm going to say something that you're going to not agree with. What is being birthed here, what is being alluded to, is the kingdom of God. The same kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. It is the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about in the Synoptic Gospels the one that is called the kingdom of heaven, the one that John the Baptist preached at, was at hand in Matthew 3, 2. This is the thing. This is the kingdom that Jesus spoke about in Luke eight ten, when he said to the disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so, they, the, so that in seeing they may not see, in hearing they may not understand. But this doesn't line up with many people's understanding of the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. And this ties in with the thinking that we are now lacking in Christ, that we are barely holding on, but soon Jesus is going to sweep in to allow us to escape this world and his plan as he takes us away. Many Christians are looking for Christ to return to finish what he started. They're looking for a day when their joy will be full, a day when they will be swept up into heaven, and all the mean people here on the world are going to be punished, and they get to watch and glee. Or there are those that think that God is going to bring about a worldwide awakening. That heaven will be here on earth, and it's all going to be good for us here because we're all going to be Christians. One day all peoples, all nations will bow their knee to Jesus, and then the end of the world will come. That is when the kingdom of heaven will come. But Jesus answered the question of when the kingdom of God will come in Luke 17, 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or look there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I submit to you along with Calvin, and Augustine, and Sproul, and Whitfield, and Edwards, that Jesus is the kingdom of God. That he is the physical manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. God's people under God's rule, purchased by God. But you're skeptical. You're thinking... Man, he's painting with much too broad a brush. He's really trying to find something within his text that aren't there. Or maybe you're just confused because the Left Behind series never said anything about the kingdom of heaven happening on the day of Pentecost. Well, the disciples were no less confused. After his resurrection and right before his ascension, they asked him, Lord, will you restore at this time, the kingdom of Israel, Acts 1.6. They were looking at this reality and not the real reality. And his response to them is telling, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has out in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witness to, witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 7, and 8. Let me explain to you why the kingdom of heaven was birthed the day that the church was birthed. I'm going to have to take us on a bit of a roundabout to get there. But hang on, focus, and I'm positive that you will be able to understand. You're going to need your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is countering the bad theology within the local church body there. He begins by speaking about uh, about the subject of Jesus being raised from the dead. When he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so here's the bad theology that he was countering. And here's his argument. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And Paul goes on arguing his case in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What he is saying that you can't have is that you can't have salvation without resurrection. Jesus being incarnate of a woman, living a sinless, perfect life, and dying on the cross, and not being raised again, isn't sufficient. He must be raised from the, grave, from the grave. He must be resurrected into his perfect body that is just like the ones that we will be resurrected to. And if this has not happened, then we are still dead in our sins. His resurrection is the seal that our sins have been paid for, that he is the Lamb of God, that the blood price was paid in full and was fully acceptable to the Father. But verse 19 is key to understanding life in Christ. Life with Christ. If in Christ we have have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Where do you place your hope? Is it in the things of this world? Or is it in a rapture that is supposed to take you out of this world? Or is it in the making of this world into a more godly place? Or do you think that Jesus saved you to give you your best life now? That money, ease of life, beautiful houses, killer toys are the assurance of salvation that has been promised to you? Do you believe that sickness is only for the weak of faith? That pain and heartache only come to those that don't have sufficient faith? And if any of these things are true, then you are hoping in this life you are worshiping a false god and you are to be most pitied because you will end up being disappointed here. And possibly even more so when you stand before the supreme judge and may fail the test because you, because you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. But fo- for the folks that Paul was arguing against, they actually thought that this life was it one and done. No afterlife. No resurrection, no eternity with God. They had brought the false religious beliefs of the Sadducees into Christianity. But Paul drops the hammer on this bad theology of those that claim that Jesus did not rise, beginning in verse 20. He says, But in fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. For as a man came, for as by a man came death. By also a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Clarification here. We need to get this, to understand this. When Paul says that all die in Adam, he does mean all men for all time. No question about it. And when he says that in Christ all are made alive, he means all men. For all time. No question about it. He does mean that every all men will end up in heaven. At least for a brief moment. But he doesn't mean that all men are saved. What he does mean is that all that are saved are saved through Jesus alone. That he is the only way to the Father. And that there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. All others will be resurrected. Just as we will, just as Jesus was, but, and this is a big nasty but, they will end completely for the rest of eternity spending that time in their resurrected eternal bodies. This is what makes hell, hell. It never ends. They will spend all eternity suffering the wrath of God in hell because they hate the Father, because they hate the Son. And Paul then goes on to explain what he means about being made alive. Though he says, "But each in its own order: Christ the firstfruits; then at his coming those who belong to Christ; then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, or to kingdom, the kingdom to God." The Father, after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here he delivers the coup de grace, the nail that seals the coffin on that false theology that was being propagated in Corinth. The thing that I want you to see, the things that are relevant to the point that I'm making, are those things concerning the kingdom that is delivered to God. And the last enemy, which is death. We all understand what, when the end comes, what that means. It means that it hasn't happened yet. The end of the age has not occurred. We get that. We're living. We understand that. The millennial period has not ended. But when it does end, Jesus, the first fruits, delivers the kingdom to God. And when he does that, the last enemy destroyed is death. And this is what we are told by John in Revelation 2014, when he said, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. But what does Paul say must happen before the kingdom is delivered? Before death is destroyed? He says Christ must reign. Well, listen to Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have from us. For many of whom I have often told you and even now tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, He's talking to Christians 2,000 years ago. Our citizenship is in heaven, not will be. There are distinct words meaning will be, and he could have used them. He said, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Well, when did Jesus subject all things to himself? Has that happened? Or are we waiting for this to happen? Well, hear John in Revelation 1, 4 through 6. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who, ha- who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, written 2,000 years ago. Second Timothy 1, 8-10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death. Again, There are words meaning abolished and abolishing and can abolish or will abolish. Who abolished death. Who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the last thing that Jesus said in our verses today was for them to ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. What he desired these men to see, to get. What he desires us to see and get. Is that what he has birthed through his death? It's the fulfillment of his mission. It's the beginning of the end. There is nothing more that we lack. Nothing more that we are supposed to expect. Nothing more new or different that we are still waiting to be given. Christ has birthed the church through his defeat of death and sin. Christ has brought about the millennium period, the rule and reign of Christ, through his conquering of death and sin, and is reigning on his throne over his people. In fact, over all people. And one day when this period ends, we have been given um, one more promise. 2nd I'm sorry, Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is what will bring joy to our lives. This is what we are to ask of the Father in the name of the Son. And our joy will be full in the asking and the answering. Let us endeavor to know the one who is the kingdom of God. Who has defeated death. Who has taken away our sin and who will deliver us to our Father who is in our home? Let's pray.